Good evening. Can you hear me? Yep. Sounds good. <laughs> Welcome to Metaception. Of course. Happy to have you, as always. Happy and good spirits. Uh, yeah, I think reasonably so. Um, this coming week is the last week of the semester for me. Um, so it's not going to be too busy, mainly because uh, all I have left to do is one exam. And I just have to put a couple exams online and uh, grade some papers. And then once, and that's, uh, once that's all done, um, I should be finished for the semester. Uh, the only thing after that would just be inputting final grades for the classes I TA for. Um, and then I'll bring this semester to a close uh, in the middle of a global pandemic. Yep. How's, how's doing all that remotely uh, worked out for you? Have you adapted? You know, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Uh, in some ways, yes, I have adapted. In other ways, not very well. Um, uh, one of the things, I don't know, like I've been disciplined about getting up early and going on walks every day. So that way I can still get exercise and still maintain a reasonable schedule. Uh, I haven't been very productive during the day. Um, mainly because I don't have a great space for getting work done. Um, none of the tables in our house are just really comfortable to work on or with. Um, and so it's, it's kind of hard for me to get into work mode um, most days. So I, I've been able to get everything done that needs to be done, um, but I haven't been more productive, uh, which I might have ho- I kind of hoped I might have been. Um, just because, you know, there's a little bit of extra time that you save from not having to make a commute. Um, but just because it's not an optimal working environment, I think that's been kind of a hindrance there. Um, so, I mean, all in all, I feel okay with it because I've still gotten everything done that needs to be done. I haven't turned in anything late. Um, but, you know, I haven't achieved as much from a research perspective as I might have liked to have done. So that's kind of where I'm at with the pandemic situation. Uh, as far as working from home is concerned. Um, so, all in all, not too bad. But, right. you know, I, I'm also in a very fortunate position. Um, so, you know, lots of other people are suffering much more so. So, uh, really, I don't have anything to complain about there. All right. Very nice. I'm curious also about, like, the actual logistics of doing, like, the specific things you do, like, remotely. Like, how do you try to grade papers, like, and the place that you're at mm-hmm. and input uh, grades and all that and you know take exams and class and all that yeah so i mean all that stuff i mostly did on my computer to begin with um so i mean they turn in all the papers and assignments online so i just have word documents and pdfs that i read through um and you know then my professor has a rubric which i use to grade essays um, so I follow his rubric and then I grade based upon that. As far as like taking exams are concerned, um, there's a system that we use called Respondus uh, Lockdown Browser. And so in order to take the test, um, so I would post the test online on Canvas, which is sort of the grade distribution website we use. And um, I would make it so that the student has to download this browser called Respondus Lockdown Browser. And what it does is it closes their browser window so that the only browser window they can have open is the one um, with the test in it. So they can't open other browsers on their device to like look up answers. And then what it also does is it uses the student's webcam to record them taking a test. And it, there's a computer algorithm that basically flags suspicious behavior. So if a student is looking away from their computer frequently, the computer algorithm will flag that as suspicious behavior. And then I can go in and watch the video of the student taking the test to determine if this suspicious behavior looks like cheating. Okay. Um, so, I mean, we've been doing that for exams. Um, 
you know, and I've just been doing the rest of my work online. I think the biggest detriment is that we haven't been able, I haven't been able to do any um, neuroimaging research, um, at least uh, in person, like neuroimaging research. Um, so prior to uh, the outbreak of the pandemic, you know, usually at least once or twice a week, I would sit in on an MRI scan at the MRI center um, to sort of get practice, like being on the other side of, of scanning a person. Um, and I need a certain number of hours of practice uh, as an assistant scanner, so to speak, before I can scan people on my own. Um, and so, you know, I guess the biggest detriment is that it's less time for me to get that practice. And I'll still have to get those same hours before I can start collecting uh, neuroimaging scans for my thesis. So it's actually kind of perfect in some ways, though, because it's giving me an opportunity to work on my thesis proposal. So I think the tentative plan as it stands right now is I'm going to write up my thesis proposal this summer and think very carefully about how I want to design the experiments. I have a rough outline of the experiment, but uh, you know, planning out all the individual elements is kind of what I need to do in the next couple months. Um, and so I, what I'll do is I'll plan out all the details, put it into a proposal, and then ideally I would defend that proposal in August or September at the beginning of fall semester. Um, and then as soon as I pass my proposal defense, I would just begin collecting data. Very nice. So as far as my Thank thesis you. is yeah. concerned, um, I'm just going to be collecting uh, some neuroimaging data. So some MRI scans, um, some personality questionnaires, and then also some physiological data. So heart rate, um, skin conductance response, um, facial musculature response, um, really just indexes of autonomic nervous system activity. And so the idea is that we're going to collect that at the same time as we're collecting uh, brain scans while the participant is lying in the MRI scanner. And then prior to that, we'll have collected personality data on all the participants. All right. Good on you that you're able to work around the situation in a way that still works toward your goals. Yeah, there are a lot of other people in my department and program that are not as fortunate. Um, there's one student in my program, he's a fifth year, and he's in the middle of collecting data for his dissertation. Um, and this situation probably means he's going to have to graduate another semester later than he had originally planned. Um, in some cases, there are, I know people that are graduating two semesters or even three potentially semesters later. Um, because it interrupted all of their data collection. Yeah, that's, um, I can imagine that being incredibly frustrating. Mm -hmm. Well, especially after yeah. you've been in a program for like almost five years, you know, it's like, want to do year six? <laughs> yeah. How's it, how about Abigail? How's it, how has it affected her? Um, for the most part, she's been okay. So I talked to her last week. Um, and she so her mom is with her um and um you know so they're living together at in auburn in uh, abigail's apartment um so which is good because she's not alone you know it's good to have someone else with you especially family um and she's just been working from home i mean she put her thesis project online actually and the good news is is abigail's thesis project so she's a clinical psychology student she studies trauma and PTSD. And so her thesis project is um, essentially collecting data from participants who have had stressful life experiences. So like, you know, you're invited to fill out the survey if you've had like a highly stressful life experience um, because her thing is just studying responses to those kinds of experiences. So that, I that sounds, sorry, um, I was gonna say that sounds very vague, like very stressful. I feel that's the kind of thing that would be like too universal. I figure if you yeah. try to narrow it down, like like some people who've, who've been diagnosed with PTSD, like something more specific and easier to measure. Mm -hmm. Well, the idea is that you don't want to limit it to people who have already been diagnosed, um, 
because that's going to influence the results. And she's not interested in the population of people who have been diagnosed. Um, a lot of her research is focused around people who haven't been diagnosed per se. That's actually one of the exclusion criteria for the study. Um, okay. So primarily she's interested in collecting research from people who have been through life experiences that are highly stressful, but who haven't uh, been formally diagnosed with right. uh, depression or anxiety or PTSD or any other mental right. health disorder. Um, right. But yeah, no, I mean, it's a, it's a fair point. What, in the survey, when you take it, it, it's, it basically, it'll, it'll say... I'm guessing you've taken it? Yeah, I went, I went through... Uh, well, I didn't take it, but I went through and like looked at the link. And when you go to the link, uh, it has like a information page that you know tells you about the survey and it gives you like a set of like different t- examples of types of things that would be considered like highly stress- stressful life events so that'd be things like death of a loved one um, severe car accidents um, you know getting arrested or like you know getting seriously ill or something you know those are kind of like the examples yep so, I mean, you you are right to, to make the point, though, that, you know, that is a very vague thing. Like, what is that? You know, every different people, you know, mean very different things uh, when they talk about what is highly stressful, right? You know, people have different stress tolerances. Indeed. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. for her, it hasn't affected it just because she's been doing survey data. So, people are still, you know, that's all online. So, people are just going and filling it out. Right, that's good. About I, I just have to ask, um, yeah. what's what since you have access to that footage, what's it like to have to like observe people while they're taking tests just to check to see if they're being honest about it? Um, it's weird. I don't like it. Um, it feels creepy <laughs> and like voyeuristic. Um, <laughs> Does it feel Orwellian? Uh, yes, that that's the other word I was looking for. It does feel a little Orwellian. I, I've only looked at two tests, though. Um, last time they took the test, only two students had stuff that was flagged. And the stuff that they were flagged for, it, I won't, it wasn't even really their fault because it was just bad internet connection. Like the video basically stalled and stopped for a moment and the computer flagged that as suspicious behavior. I'm pretty sure, from my perspective, it looks like it was just low internet. Um, so it, it, it wasn't really like an issue, I guess. But it did feel weird. Like it was nice because you could, like, it, it, the thing will flag time points uh, at which suspicious behavior occurs. So you don't have to watch the full, like, hour of the student taking the test. Like you can just fast forward to the time point, which is really nice because that would suck having to watch like someone taking a test for like an hour and a half. (laughs) So fortunately I don't have to do that. Yeah. Um, I did find out though that I won't be TAing uh, next, this summer or or next year. Um, They're moving me to a graduate research assistantship which is awesome for me because it gives me more time to focus on research. So all the funding stuff is the same. I just get funded for doing research instead of being funded for being a, a teaching assistant. So I'm, I'm in great spirits about that. Glad to hear it. Very nice. Is it, are you assistant for a professor that you like, that you respect or has a good reputation, whatever? Yeah, well, so it, it's just for my advisor. Oh, okay, never mind. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, all, all the research I do is just for that lab. Um, so I'm, I'm more than happy to do it. It's the research I'm most interested in. So most of that will probably be thesis work. But I have like a few ideas for projects that I want to get started probably in the summer, like pre-registering them and filling out the IRBs. Um, my summer goals basically constitute creating a few IRBs and uh, for I have like two or three project ideas so I'm thinking depending on I don't know it just depends on time management so either I'll start two of them or maybe three of them but I don't want to put too many balls in motion at once otherwise they'll kind of get away from me yep I can respect so, that I mean the main goal is to focus on the thesis that has to be the main priority 
yeah. So that's what I'm up to as far as school stuff is concerned. This week was absolutely crazy. Um, I had a large paper for my meta-analysis class that I've been working on the whole semester that was due on Wednesday. And I feel like I wrote about 10 pages in like three days, which was a mistake. Uh, (laughs) But they actually turned out surprisingly well, I think. I haven't gotten the grade back yet, so we'll see. Maybe I'll be eating my words later, but... (laughs) Um, it was it was a difficult project, but I'm happy that it's finished at this point. Good on you. So I'm somewhat thrilled about that. But how how has things been on your end? Um, a few things actually. Um, something that that's a bit unfo- that admittedly is kind of unfortunate, but also I guess was kind of unavoidable at a certain point is that. Um, me and my, I told you before that me, that my father, uh, joined where, where I work at, right? In, in a different department, but he's at Lighthouse in Hurricane with me, right? So, unfortunately, and this, I imagine it's happened to most of the departments there, is that we recently have started uh, going a furlough. Ooh, that is unfortunate. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. So, when did that happen? We got the phone call on Friday that we won't start working again until we've been given the heads up and until the go ahead once business is back up and running to where it's just they're not getting enough demand for products that it's that's just not sustainable to keep us on for the time being. At the very least, um, I was actually going to write an email about this, but I, I haven't just haven't been motivated enough to send it yet. But so I might as well tell you now. Um, at the very least, that I'm at least thankful that. I, uh, that the accrued paid sick leave and vacation time that I have up to this point I can still use if I want to, and I haven't. Oh, and yeah, I've I've been building up since late November when I first started, and unfortunately I haven't used any of it. So if it if it gets to a point for my family that we really need extra income, then I can use that. And also, I'm glad okay. that. That I've been patient and frugal enough to not have bought my own car yet, so I still have most of my savings intact. So that, mm, that, yeah, so I don't think we'll get to that point. We seem mostly secure at the moment, mm-hmm. but it's just good knowing that we still have that, um, I guess, safety net, so to speak. Yeah, no, yeah. I'm glad to hear that there is savings there. That's that's very helpful. Yeah, but sorry to hear that. It's frustrating. So. Uh, you got the call just two days ago. And two days ago. Two days yep. ago. Oh wow! Yeah, so that's yeah, that is very recent. Yeah. I mean, there were kind of there were signs. It wasn't. I didn't take me completely by surprise because I did hear some of like sure. some talk of it from like other coworkers that it was possible they would have a furlough, and I did it like and we're being sent home early every. Well, not us. Well, not people in my department specifically, but I, other people in other departments, like when there wasn't enough product to keep them busy during the day, then they would just get some home early and it was just, and they was just kind of reminded us by our, our like supervisors that things t- times were going to be a bit tough and kind of tighter and like workers were going to be kind of tight around here for a little while. So it was always a possibility in the back of our heads. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I hear that. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So yeah, like obviously, um, I am very uh, cynical, but I like being as cynical as I am. I still take pride in being able to be grateful and count my blessings, knowing that I'm not, say, a parent who has kids to take care of, and in this situation, who has to who has to put them in, uh, who has to find someone to take care of them while they're at work, or helps help them get and to get, be able to keep, make sure that they're able to progress through online school all right so they're staying on top of things or being able to make sure I can provide or just even providing for them so I'm, I'm grateful that I'm not in that situation yeah. and I understand how stressful that would be for a lot of plenty of other people yeah you know I'm, I'm also grateful to not be in that position either yeah um, and still have the opportunity to work so I definitely definitely understand that and can you know definitely feel a lot of sympathy for for people who are much worse off 
from this situation. Yeah. No. Um, one thing I should let you know, um, I meant to say this at the beginning of the conversation. Um, I have to get up very, very early tomorrow. So I probably only want to talk until about nine. Um, I've got a proctor a test online tomorrow um, because people seem to always have technical issues with uh, downloading the like Respondus lockdown browser. So I have to be available to answer their questions and help them. And because of the time zone difference, the test itself starts at 6 a.m. So I want to try and get to bed early tonight. Um, so just letting you know, so okay. that way I don't cut you off abruptly. All right. So why didn't you want to have it early, talk earlier then? I did want to talk earlier, um, but I had family over, like my brother and sister, or not my brothers, my brother and sister-in-law, and they stayed much later than I anticipated. Um, so I thought they were going to leave at like 6. They didn't leave until like 7.45, so I was like, well then. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it just kind of worked out that way. We we basically hung out from, like, 2 p.m. all the way until, like, 7.45. So that was, I mean, it was fun, but, um, so they left later than, than I expected. So I was like, oh, no. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I did want to talk for longer, though. So, unfortunately, I really do need to be up early. And I uh, have had a hard time sleeping the last year in particular. So I want to try and force myself to go to bed as early as I can. Fine. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, let's get on to the things and topics you mentioned before you wanted to talk about um, regarding sure. my collective trauma and um, if it's possible to consume adult entertainment um, ethically and how so. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. How- yeah. Um, actually, to build into the collective trauma one, I have some kind of like not so much an anecdote, but just a personal reflection that I think could help transition to that. So, something that I often think about is whether it's possible to be affected by nuts by a more lighter form of trauma from a young age where mm-hmm. you're you watch kind of content at a young age that you're that kind of is more emotionally intense than you're prepared for and if that can leave like a lasting impact on your psyche not so much content that's like violent or gory or pornographic necessarily i mean because obviously a lot of kids are exposed at a young age but just content that has a certain emotion even if it's not necessarily visually um all that adult but just the, they convey certain emotions that are very mature that you don't really understand, but you do kind of feel that that just are very powerful and that do resonate with you even at a young age. And you just spend a lot of time growing up trying to learn how to make sense of those feelings and what those emotions mean. And it's, and you wonder if they can have like ripple effects across your psyche. Yeah, I think I think that's an interesting question. It is a good place to jump into the conversation. Um, I, I spoke with a therapist once who sort of defined trauma as uh, too much too soon, um, and the point that they were making was that what defines an event as traumatic isn't some kind of objective horror or fear that's associated with the experience um, per se, so much as it is the way in which the experience is beyond you in an important sense, like that it overwhelms you in a way that, you know, you have no capacity to respond to um, in in a a meaningful sense. you know, and other people have kind of put forward other definitions. So I'm not really saying that this is like the universal definition, but I think it gets at what you, I think what I understand, I think you were trying to convey, which is that you encounter something which isn't 
you know, in, in this case, developmentally appropriate um, for your sort of level of cognition, I guess. And the fear is if you encounter something like that, even if it's maybe not like visually horrifying or extremely graphic, uh, you know, maybe there is a way in which this can have, have ripple effects in your psyche. Um, I, I sometimes think it's, it's very common um, for people to sometimes uh, get stuck in life, um, where they get stuck in either, you know, a developmental stage or they get stuck in a particular career stage or a particular relationship stage. You know, they aren't able to make transitions when they're appropriate. And I also think trauma can play a role um, in the inability to make those transitions because trauma is the kind of thing that keeps you stuck, um, you know, kind of frozen in place. Um, and I, I think perhaps, you know, it's certainly possible that you could, um, you know, have trauma from something you encountered that you weren't prepared to encounter at a young age um, that had sort of subtle effects. And the thing is, there's a gradation of trauma. So, you know, it's not like every person who's traumatized, you know, experiences the, uh, the same universal freeze response, but there's, you know, a gradations of that. So, you know, sometimes you could literally freeze in place and not move. And, you know, other times, you know, there are smaller or subtle things, you know, very subtle sort of behavioral tendencies or dispositions, which are often unconsciously, you know, influencing you that are a product of trauma. In, in many cases, you may not be aware of that. So I, I think that's an interesting and astute point. Um, do you think, and this is a question I have for you, do you think that... Um, since we're, we, we thought about this, we were going to think about this in collective terms, do you think there is a sense in which there are things that we're doing as a whole society that are sort of like collectively traumatizing our culture? That's something I think is very interesting um, and worthy of discussion. Uh, does that sort of lead where you were wanting to go or... Uh, sure, I guess. Uh, I, well, I guess maybe I, I might phrase this a little differently. I might say, because you, you brought up this example, but you said it was a personal reflection. So by personal, did you mean there was a specific anecdote from your own life that you wanted to share? It's, or... it's just a collection of a lot of small things that I keep thinking about, but just yeah, little things. Yeah, it's just how reading about and just watching things at a young age that make me think about mat mature that, that are done from a more mature viewpoint that are f that emotionally are f make me think about things that that at an at a higher level than would match my like a my age I'm sure if, if it's whether or not it's health that maybe it's well, in the long term, it might be unhealthy to, to emotionally try to connect with ideas that are far, far more developed than people than it's normal for people at that stage. Do you think this applies to people in an intellectual sense as well? Like, I, I'm thinking of like bright and precocious young children or teenagers who attempt to grapple with intellectual or philosophical ideas or concepts that are beyond their level of maturity. Yeah, that's definitely possible, but there's another angle of it that I'm also feel like mentioning that I've always kind of had difficulty articulating is where you also kind of have this like extra sense of empathy and that even in shows or like media that you watch even that is purely um not meant to be taken seriously like even if it's comedic or after where you think about the idea of the plot of what's going on and even if it's done in a way that's clearly not meant to be taken seriously you, you still think about it in a way where you can't but feels but that feel that you can't but think about it in a more literal way that makes you feel sad um mm. 
and just like there are obviously those tropes and cliches involved like certain characters who are me- meant to suffer and just comedically and who are just have bad luck sure. and you and obviously in those shows and media you it's meant to be entertaining and just not meant to be treated with any seriousness whatsoever but uh, for some reason I feel like a young age I, I always feel like the kind of sadness of watching that even though when I even though I kind of understood that was the point of it I still couldn't help but still try to empathize with the characters in some way and still feel a bit sadness at watching that and find sadness yeah. of things that were funny to most other people just because I that was the way it was presented I had a conversation once with a friend where we actually talked about this um, uh, not quite in the way you're framing it but they brought up an example of a show um, that everybody loves that's super popular and very funny um, but when you really analyze what happens to the characters and what they go through is actually in a lot of ways a very profoundly sad show and it's The Office yes <laughs> I knew it <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah. everybody loves The Office right and many people think it's like one of the funniest shows that's ever been made but if you actually really just think about what the characters are experiencing and like you know from the perspective of the characters it's actually a really um, depressing show in a lot of ways yeah <laughs> Like most of these characters are not living great lives and, and very few of them are ever satisfied with really anything that they do. You know, there are obviously exceptional moments, you know, like Jim and Pam getting married or, you know, and, and other things like that. But for the most part, most of the show is quite depressing from the standpoint of the characters themselves. Yeah, that's, that's kind of what I'm getting at. And it's just that way for a lot of shows that, that I watched growing up. Yeah, Parks and Rec is another one that's actually a good example of that, too. Yeah. And so, that's interesting. What do you think, because I I think very few people have that kind of, uh, I don't know, insight or maybe empathy, to use your word, um, you know, for, for things like that. Like, they just sort of you know, oh, haha, that's funny. We're making fun of this guy for his quirks, right? Um, I wonder, like, what that might say about, uh, you know, differences between people, like, psychologically. You know, like, what's going on psychologically when when you instead feel empathy for the character rather than, you know, feeling the humor and, and just enjoying the comedy of the situation? I don't know, I guess it's just their brains are wired in such a way that that the parts of it that tend to be more responsive to empathy are more hyperactive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they just have a greater sense... Uh, um, I don't know what the right word is, like dopamine or adrenaline rush from like think from like things they find emotionally engaging, like the emotions they just respond to more strongly and mm-hmm. feel a greater connection to you. Just because it it lights up the brain more. Sure. I I think that still, in some ways, it sort of begs the question, because then the question becomes, why are their brains wired differently? Or just maybe, or maybe, um, maybe a better term would be they were that they conditioned their minds to kind of respond to like certain instincts or impulses of empathy more strongly than others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, w- I wonder how much of that is, you know, well, it, it, once again, like how much of that is like innate disposition versus conditioning. I expect most of that is conditioning um, more than it is innate disposition. But that's just my own speculation. But it's an interesting question to consider um, because uh, empathy is important and knowing the social contexts in which we're more likely to experience empathy or less likely to experience empathy is important you know especially for social issues and so that's something interesting you know I don't know like uh, do you think of yourself like personally as somebody who like uh, is like do you find that like the empathy you experience in those situations do you find that it tends to translate 
well to other people? Or do you think it tends to be better, like, or more active in fictional situations? Because I, I, know, I know sometimes I can sometimes feel a lot more empathy for a fictional character than I might for somebody I, like, know in the real world. Um, yeah, probably it feels easier, at least from what, what I perceive at the moment. It probably feels easier to have that sense of empathy with fictional characters because you can project yourself onto them more. With mm-hmm. with real people, you still do that to some degree, but it doesn't. But because it, you have you have far less control of the situation and how you perceive things, your feels more deliberate in the way you connect with them. Yeah, and how much you're willing to siphon, you're willing to output emotional energy onto them. Because you can do that a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. You can, you're probably more willing to provide emotional energy and into something that you feel more controlling of. But uh, that's probably so for you. It's Go ahead. sorry. You were I was saying, saying that maybe just the experience oh. of like empathizing fictional characters makes it you have probably helps like develop like better instincts when empathizing with people. And that you're, and over time you are going to give empathy to, to different to a lot of people, but you're more careful with how mu- with how much energy you you project onto that, into that empathy, so that you don't become burnt out easily. Maybe that comes from personal experiences as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I think. The important point there, for me, is is the sense of control or of agency, um, which is much greater surrounding you know a fictional character, because you can sort of play with a fictional character, you know, in ways that you can't with a real person, and so in the real world, empathy is a lot more chaotic in that sense because, you know, you have to empathize in circumstances that are often less than ideal for. For you know what you're trying to do, and trying to you know, and plus uh, you you have you know you exist in social relationships, and you have you know your own agenda with other people as well, and so it can be difficult to empathize um, in the re- context of your own agenda, you know that you're trying to accomplish with with another person. Mm-hmm. So no, I, I definitely I definitely think that's a really good point. It is interesting though, like. Um, because you know it's ironic in one sense because you know you might think like it would be easier to be empathetic towards a real person than a fictional person um but you know i can certainly see how for many people it's not the case it's funny though because i i can think of people for whom it's the exact opposite who really hate fiction or really anything like both in like film and in literature um you know, I, I can think of a few people I know who really won't ever watch any films um, that aren't like biographies or documentaries um, because they see no purpose in it if it can't happen in real life. <laughs> That's a really sad way of looking at things. If I... I, yeah, I, mean, I think I think so too. <laughs> Um, actually, can I like can I add on a few things? Sure. Absolutely. Maybe also I don't know how much this applies to me. I think about this, but I, I don't know precisely how much it. I my mind works within this like framework. Is also you might be more actually there might be a negative effect that having a lot of empathy through fiction makes you maybe somewhat more resentful of people. Because in fiction, maybe that you that you consume, it's you seem you watch people, you observe people grow and develop in a way that maybe you don't see in real life, and you see them people who seem more interesting and more complex, or people who just you enjoy connecting with more in, in a fictional realm than you would than than what you observe in real life, and you maybe resent people more because they don't evolve. Or grown the way you you think they should, and that you apply, and that 
standards you develop of people that work in fiction don't work in real life and kind of maybe makes you resent them. That's interesting. I think for me, I I do this in a different way. So I have a version of this, but it's not directed towards other people. Um, it tends to be more uh, directed inwards. So I I you know there are fictional characters whom I'll sort of idealize. Um, for their journey and their transformation and who they are, um, like the values that they act out in the fictional world, like their their ideals for me, and I'll try and position myself so that I can live by those ideals or maximize those ideals. But of course, since they're ideals, they're not realized, right? Um, and so, you know, you I always come short of those ideals, um, and so. Uh, sometimes, you know, the inner critic in me can sort of project inwards and sort of shame myself for not living to the ideal um, that I might have observed in fiction or in religious literature and art and other things like that. I find it especially true for, like, religious literature, um, you know, and, and so I, I, I have it for me, but it's, it's sort of inward directed. I think the reason I don't direct it outwards, at least in my own case is that for me, when you're reading fiction, you always have a window into everything that happens in the character's life in a way that you don't have with other people. And, and so with other people in the real world, there are just many, many, many things, even if they're people you're very close with, there are many thoughts and feelings that they have that you're never aware of. Um, and circumstances that you may never be aware of. And that plays a role that's important in their story, whether or not you're aware of it or not. Um, whereas in fiction, you're, just, you're sort of given all the details, or at least all the relevant details. And although that's not always the case, I mean, sometimes stories, you know, can certainly conceal things and then reveal them at the end. But, um, you know, uh, in general, I, you know, that's that's kind of my point of view on that. But that is an interesting thing because um, I had never thought about it in that way. But I definitely have a version of that. But for me, it's inward directed. Yeah, that makes sense. And also, you can try to listen to what I said. Um, as a way of adapting side, you can try to project other people's experiences onto those of other of characters that you relate to in fiction to help feel more connected to them. Right. That you, you project it's like what would Gandalf do in this situation? Yeah, and, or you project the yeah in that sense and project their struggles and their emotions onto real people so that you feel a greater connection with them and, that you, try, and you try to be more empathetic to them through and yeah. by project by making a version of them in your mind that seems more sympathetic or more interesting to you fill in the gaps that you wouldn't otherwise know yeah no I think that's I think that's great like in other words you know take what you can from what you read in fiction and, and really try and sort of consciously use that you know to to become the person you want to be you know i think it's important fictional or otherwise to find role models and people to whom you sort of aspire or it's not so much that you aspire to be them but it's you aspire to the virtues that that person displays you know so it's like you know aspiring after the wisdom of Socrates, after the compassionate love of Christ, uh, you know, after the uh, flow and cleverness of Lao Tzu, the Taoist sage, right? And, and that kind of thing. Yeah. You aspire to each of the virtues in turn that those people represent. Um, there's also a, a, a dangerous side to this life. I think it deserves to be discussed more. That you kind of put yourself in a position, you also kind of aspire towards certain vices or struggles 
that you don't really need or even really have, but you kind of put yourself, make yourself have them. So to kind of make your, kind of make your life more interesting in a sense, because you want to have an arc, I guess. You want to have a struggle to overcome and you want to have a journey. You want to feel like you accomplished something. So even if you're already doing fine, but you don't really feel a strong sense of meaning or purpose at the moment, if if things just feel hollow, then you'll aspire to be like, you project yourself onto characters who have endured more struggle, more struggles than you have and who've endured greater pain because you feel greater sense of meaning in their journey than in your own. So you kind of purposely indulge in vices or habits that aren't healthy for you, but you do it specifically because you want to have something to overcome. So you, so you want to feel like you've been on an adventure, you, that you've done something great and heroic, or that you've grown as a person. You want to f- purposely, you purposely let yourself fall just so you can say that you got to back up. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know if I've ever done that uh, intentionally, at least. Maybe I've done it unconsciously. I mean, I guess I wouldn't know since it would be unconscious. Um, it seems strange to me that anybody would intentionally make their life harder um, for the purpose of, you know, like just for the sake of like uh, saying that they overcame a hard thing. You know, I mean, I guess it's not so strange when I think of like, you know, like, I don't know, super intense athletes who will challenge themselves to do crazy Or, or just people who act in ways that seem kind of self-destructive and against their own self-interest. Uh, often that seems to me more to be motivated by a feeling of self-loathing than boredom although I guess boredom and self-loathing often go hand in hand um, at least to me it sounds like you're describing a kind of boredom that inspires self-destruction for the sake of ha- making something interesting happen kind of that's kind of what I'm yeah thinking. in a sense um, I, I guess well I guess that's an unfair what counter projection on my part because I don't personally relate to it, but I can certainly understand how other people would have or experience that dynamic. Yeah, it's just the idea that a lot of people kind of wish that, and that's obviously they want to feel like they accomplish great things and that they're capable of heroic things, heroic um, ideals. And so they want to act, they act in certain so as a sense of desperation, they project certain um, narratives onto their own lives that are often unreasonable and maybe irrational, just to feel like they're a part of a struggle, uh, which maybe ex- helps ex- explain why people join um, cults or like extremist movements or do th- mm-hmm. act in groups in ways that are often unreasonable and to a lot to outsiders seems plainly irrational and delay and delusional just to feel they're a part of something yeah uh, I think of cults as meaning hijackers yeah because that's precisely what you know they will frequently prey on people who are vulnerable uh, in that way people who don't feel a sense of being meaningfully connected to you know a real narrative arc or struggle in their life i think when you frame it that way it makes a little more sense to me now um because i certainly i certainly see that especially in our culture where at, at the present moment where we have such a crisis of meaning um more more and more people i think are becoming vulnerable to that kind of thing um you know, I often think about that in relationship to conspiracy thinking as well. Because um, we've also seen the advent or the increase in conspiracy theorizing, um, you know, in response to a lot of the sociopolitical events. So, you know, I, I definitely think there's a way in which um, an absence of meaningful connection plays a role in the development of uh, 
you know, of people who are predisposed in a certain way to, you know, engage with um, and create conspiracy theories. Um, because they're a way of sort of simplifying the world in a way that's highly meaningful. I don't know if that resonates or not, um, but it was a connection that just occurred to me. Yeah. Um, how do you think um, that's, and going back a bit, that sense of cultural crisis of meaning can play into a um, sense of co- to collective trauma? Ooh. That's fascinating. Um, well, I have, you know, a little bit of personal experience with trauma. Um, and so much of what I'll probably say is derived from, from that experience. And, you know, what little that I have read about trauma, um, you know, and other people. Um, one of the things I, I, I can't cite the study because I, I, I won't remember it off offhand. But I know that there's empirical literature, more than one study, that supports the notion that one thing that is a negative predictor of trauma or or post-traumatic, not trauma, but of post-traumatic stress disorder, so a dysfunctional response to trauma, um, is the degree to which a person experiences and feels meaning in life, um, subjective meaning in life. So how that person subjectively rates their own sense of personal meaning in life. Um, And I think that um, in our culture, we're at a unique position because at large, for most of history, the culture made its primary meaning from religious mythology. you know, and specifically the religious mythologies that were born in the Axial Age at, with the advent of Christianity and Buddhism um, and also um, the major philosopher, ancient philosophers of the West, Plato, Socrates, these figures. And we're at a point now where that sort of mythology, the Axial Age mythology, is no longer viable for many people, but the secular alternatives um, in the 20th century, which were um, communism, Stalinism, you know, uh, Marxism, um, those sort of political, almost pseudo-religious political ideologies um, drenched the world in blood. And so I think to a large degree, our culture is sort of collectively traumatized by both of those, both of those extremes, you might say. Um, And the state of trauma is a state of being stuck, of being frozen, of being unable to get out of one's own existential inertia. Um, And as a consequence of that, we're sort of stuck, sort of unmoored from our cultural cognitive meaning making so to speak um and i think that sense of meaning you know a lack of meaning um i think you can see how that interacts with trauma in some profound ways um one thing that you know uh being able to one thing that meaning does for trauma is it allows you to integrate traumatic experiences in a way that is directed towards your growth. Um, and I think the degree to which you lack meaning, a sense of meaning or in life or a sense of connection to the world around you, um, the less that you feel your actions have a place, like a proper place in the world. And I think because of that, it sort of, it disconnects you in a way that is detrimental, I think, to mental health. Um, and so it's a little bit of a long-winded answer, and I kind of connected a bunch of threads together. Um, if I could summarize it, I guess I'd probably just say that our culture is sort of collectively traumatized by the loss of our meaning-making systems, 
um, and we're stuck uh, with that trauma and we don't know how to get beyond it um, and to find a new set of sort of meaning making psychotechnologies and, and ways of, of being and operating in the world um, I don't know how that strikes you um, but that, that's kind of my answer to that question all right I respect that and it's very interesting to me and that does resonate quite a bit and I want to build on it build on it somewhat um, do you want to say for a few more sure. four more minutes um, I was, yeah yeah absolutely. I was gonna say I could I'll stay till 9 30 so if I get to bed at 10 it's all right so I want to add on to that do you have like make the supplement to that how much do you think um, a greater societal sense of fragility and builds on that in the sense that um, like all the crisis within the world of pandemics along with all this socio-political chaos that gives people a greater sense of fragility that that how fragile their conditions are their livelihood that's the things that they build their identities around or make them feel more fragile and how that if, how that can further inflate a internal sense of trauma yeah, no, I, I think that's very a very astute point. There are two thoughts that come up for me. Um, so the first one has to do with the sort of anxiety and depression epidemic, especially among uh, American youth, that's been observed in the last 20 to 30 years in particular. Um, rates of anxiety and depression among youth in America have increased substantially in the last 20 to 30 years, some of which is due to you know additional diagnosis that should have been done earlier but most of it is not explainable by those factors alone so people uh, it's somewhat of mystery um there hasn't been research that's really settled uh the issue in regards to like what's going on but i read an article in the atlantic recently um that talked about this in, in the context of anxiety um and one of the points that the article made was that one of the things that really powerfully predicts anxiety um, it has to do with the way in which parents accommodate children. Um, and the term the article used uh, is called accommodating behaviors. So the, the example of that would be if a child is scared of the neighbor's dog um, and they're walking with the parent you know past the dog's you know the neighbor's yard and the dog starts barking um rather than having the child walk past the dog the parent takes the child across to the other side of the street so essentially removing the child from the uncomfortable or scary stimulus um and the issue is that if you train that habit um you increase the anxiety associated with the scary stimulus um, and, you know, make it impossible for this person to like meaningfully interact with that, you know, like it's a sort of conditioning that, you know, has to be undone. And so um, I think there's a way in which there are sort of like socio-political contexts that have influenced this. So one example is that many parents are now working um, two jobs, so they're not at home uh, with the children for most of the day. Um, children are not nearly as meaningfully connected to the labor that's done, um, you know, largely because, you know, well, for one, child labor, obviously children don't work, but also, you know, we send children to school but most, many children don't find the work that's being done at school meaningful or really understand it in relationship to the progression of their like development and future self. So children aren't like meaningfully connected to their like development and to like, you know, labor itself, like being able to like meaningfully, like kind of like doing work with your hands, like being able to make meaningful creations. That's just an example. You can do other kinds of work, of course, that's meaningful. Um, and so I think these sort of things are so, so sort of like interacting with uh, and influencing parents because it makes it easier for parents um, who are already exhausted at the end of long shifts to engage in accommodating behaviors because that makes the house 
flows more smoothly. It reduces tension in the short term, um, even though it causes anxiety in the long term. Um, and so I think there's a relationship between those. Um, and that sort of is influencing sort of like mental health challenges. What I want to say is that because we have a society in which people don't feel that they are meaningfully connected to the world and that the world has sort of like a narrative order to it, um, that the world is sort of a chaotic and uh, either chaotic, indifferent, or um, sort of empty place. Um, there's, there's sort of a way in which, and I, I'm struggling to articulate this the way that I would like to, uh, narrative order is the best term I can use, I think. Um, I, I guess, in other words, people don't feel that their actions are sort of like meaningfully structured, structured in a way that contributes to their growth and development in a way that sort of makes sense, in a way that we make sense out of things by imposing narratives upon them. And there's a dark side to the imposition of narratives, which can lead to trauma. Um, you know, if a, if a false or unhealthy narrative is imposed. Um, uh, but then there's a dark side of having no narrative at all, which is sort of the dark side of nihilism um, in its most extreme form. Um, so I do think that the fact that we don't give, especially children, but even many adults, opportunities to interact in a way that makes them feel as if they're meaningfully connected to their world, I do think that furthers a sense of alienation, which plays a big role in trauma. The more isolated people are, the worse their responses are to trauma. Um, the more likely they are to develop post-traumatic stress disorder, the more likely they are to commit suicide, the more likely they are to struggle with substance uh, use disorders, with addictions. You know, virtually every outcome upon which you could measure well-being is worse in people who are isolated. Um, and so, you know, if people don't feel themselves to be meaningfully connected to the world, this also, you know, kind of fits in with some of the things we've talked about in regards to civic engagement, where, you know, people are much less engaged with their local political scene. And, um, you know, the small but concrete actions they can take to actually concretely influence the direction that their community takes. And some of that, much of that lies with the responsibility of individuals. Um, and this is a point we've, we've discussed before because one of the things you realize is that if you take time and effort to do a little bit of research, you'll find that there's actually probably quite a few things going on in your community that you could participate in and could, you know, provide some meaningful support towards. Um, but many people are sort of existentially inert and or trapped, you know, and, and I think that creates a sense of, of, of trauma to some degree and, and interacts with that. So that was also a long-winded answer, but I thought it was an interesting question. There was a lot of pieces there that I wanted to bring. Yeah, up. I respect that. I'm glad that you went in as deep into that as you thought, as you liked. I was swearing going. Yeah. Um, real quick, this is a bit of a side note, but because you remind me of it, <laughs> if I kind of wonder, um, doesn't matter. Do you have any reaction? If you don't, that's fine. Just any like real like opinion or reaction to seeing, to knowing that your mayor was in part of um, the national news through. Um... <laughs> you know, it's it's funny actually. Uh, so my family and I talked about this quite a bit while we were hanging out. Um, my mom hadn't seen the interview with Anderson Cooper, so <laughs> my brother, the first thing he did was pull up the interview and show my mom. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I, I, you, you find, you find <laughs> my first, uh, go ahead. The, the optics were so bad <laughs> on that situation. And my, I, I, so I had a group class over zoom, um, that same day. 
and I, um, or the day after, I think, and I said to my Zoom class, I said, hey, if any of you uh, happen to watch CNN, I would just like to apologize on behalf of Las Vegas. <laughs> Mrs. Goodman does not represent the opinion of, of, of Nevadans. <laughs> And a few people thought that was pretty funny. Um, so, I mean, for me, I, it was more just like, oh boy, that was unpleasant. <laughs> um, I, I was unhappy. But the thing is, I understand where uh, she's coming from. I think in this case, it was really just poor optics and very poor, I don't know, perhaps social awareness <laughs> and very like, impulsive. And impulsivity. Yeah. Like, she just spoke very badly. Tone, like, well, it's just that uh, I was tone deaf and she, she didn't n- n- know her audience very well. Yeah, just very tone deaf, I think. Um, interestingly enough, Carolyn Goodman actually has cancer and she's been undergoing chemotherapy this year. So, you know, it made me wonder how much of that might be a result of, like, exhaustion or fatigue, you know, um, or, you know, sickness from chemotherapy. Um, You know, if she had gone on CNN and she had said, look, I understand the reason for the stay-at-home orders um, and the closure of non-essential businesses, but I really think we could find a way to open up some of those businesses, um, you know, and, and do that and start engaging in that process slowly, but starting now. I, I think that would have been perfectly reasonable. I, like, I would have disagreed, but I think it would have been perfectly reasonable, and I don't think it would have blown up. So for me, it was really just a very poor communication on her part than, than it was uh, malice or evil, um, you know. Some people were sort of treating it like she was essentially just wanting to flippantly sacrifice first line, you know, workers and stuff. And I did think it was, you know, I think Anderson Cooper was right to challenge her and say, you know, are you going to be in the casinos with your family? You know, Um, and she was like, why? No, I have a family. And then he's like, well, okay, why aren't you putting your money where your mouth is? You know, you're willing to let other people go to the casinos and, you know, risk their families, but not you, you know, so. And of course, she's not because she has cancer. So, like, she's definitely at high risk. Um, Yeah. So, it's just, yeah, it just, it came across very poorly. (laughs) I was unhappy. Um, Actually, I have a meme I should should text you after this call um, that that was quite funny. It was sort of making fun of that situation. Um, something else I wanted to mention this is kind of a slightly um, different uh, topic um, but I did get a chance to finish reading the book that you sent me by Kathleen Smith really? it's great uh, yeah um, so I was able to read it this week it was really good I, I read most of it yesterday actually it was a really quick read um, I enjoyed it a lot so I kind of just zoomed through it but I'm planning on going through the practices kind of like individually um, especially along with the PDF guide that you attached in the email you sent me Um, because each chapter you know ends with a different practice like to to engage in Um, I like that she defined